So have you ever been to a loud restaurant? I mean, a loud restaurant. You know, you're sitting there and you just can't hear yourself think. I saw an article the other day that was talking about the fact that restaurants are getting louder. It's not like they're getting quieter, they're getting louder. And why? Well, we've been, you know, sometimes it's just that the music is too loud. Sometimes the place is packed. There's just a lot of people in there, and it's just loud from everybody being in there. Sometimes it's loud because of the building itself. I was reading about a a hotel that opened recently, and it is inside of a 110-year-old former church. So all of the restaurants and the bars and the coffee shops, all the, the food places kind of extend out of the main lobby. Well, the main lobby used to be the sanctuary, used to be the the auditorium of the church. And so that room and that building was designed for a lot of people to hear one person. Now, that's super cool for a church service. But if you're on a romantic dinner for two, sitting in a spot where normally lots of people can hear one person, doesn't really work out for your romantic dinner. It might feel a little more like the Griswold family reunion by the time you get to dessert. It's just going to be too loud. There's another reason that restaurants might be louder in America, and that's because we're loud. (laughs) We're loud people, all right? We're just just loud. It's kind of how we are. There's a restaurant I heard about overseas that they actually have a ban on loud Americans in their restaurant, you know? We're We're just loud people. So why? Why are we loud? Tyler Cohen is an economist. He gives a few reasons. Here's one of them. Characters on TV speak more loudly, and Americans watch more TV and admire and mimic it more. All right? From Jackie Gleason to Lucy to Kramer to Grunkle Stan to every single person who's ever been on a reality show. TV people are loud. They're just loud. And we watch them and then we go out and we're loud like them, usually everywhere that we go. Calvin gives another reason we're probably loud as Americans. America is a nation of immigrants with English language proficiency of varying quality, including historically. For whatever reason, good or bad, we tend to shout a bit when the listener is not fluent in our language. Don't deny this. We've all done it. Nice to meet you. Welcome to the United States. Here's some homemade pimento cheese. We we do this for some reason. We think if we're louder, they'll understand English better. It never works, so just don't, you know. We'll have to train ourselves. You know, sometimes, though, when it comes to hearing, we don't need a a different language to bother us or to get in our way. We don't need to be in a restaurant where they're blaring Rick Astley over the Muzak, you know. Sometimes our our hearing problem has a a whole other route, and it doesn't involve our ears, One day, Jesus was telling a story to a crowd of people. There were some people in the crowd that were dialed in. I mean, they were were hanging on every word. They loved the the plot line of the story. They were riveted by it, and they they were fascinated with the characters in the story. They were completely dialed in. But then there were some other people in the crowd that were not dialed in. They didn't understand the plot. They didn't understand the point. They didn't understand the purpose because they couldn't hear. 
And the reason they couldn't hear was not because the music was too loud. And the reason they couldn't hear was not because Jesus was speaking in a foreign accent. They couldn't hear because their hearts and their minds were full of stubborn pride. Couldn't hear. And the worst part is their pride was keeping them from a pretty incredible story. There was a son, and the son went to his dad, and he demanded his inheritance early. The dad graciously honored his request, gave him his share, and then released him. So the son, just by the character of who he is, we can think that he's probably going, finally, I'm free. I'm free from my dad's house. I'm I'm free from my dad's rules. I'm free from my dad's ways. I can finally go live the life that I want to live. I can finally go do my life my way. And that's what he did. He took that money and and he went away to a far country and he lived it up. I mean, the best restaurants, the best parties, the best jewelry, the best of everything. And then one day he went from best to bust. Found himself working a job feeding pigs. He had enough money probably to last him the rest of his life with never having to go get a job. And yet his wild, immoral lifestyle led him to blow all of it. It was all gone. So he woke up one morning homeless and helpless. And he knew there was only one thing he could do. Only one. He had to go home. Home. Home, the the place he couldn't wait to get away from. The one place he would never want to go back to became the only place he could go. Home wasn't going to be easy either. See, he knew he was guaranteed to be shamed. He was guaranteed to be embarrassed. He would face some kind of verbal abuse, and really according to culture, they might even try to stone him to death. He didn't just offend his family. He offended their whole way of life. But he was desperate. He had nothing else to do. He had to go home. So he went home. And the strangest thing happened is as he neared the the gates of the city, he saw his father running to meet him. His father, the one he disobeyed, the one he disowned, the one he disgraced, the one he dishonored, that man was running to meet him. And when he got to him, he didn't reject him. He embraced him. He called for his servants, get the, get the best tuxedo I have and, and put it on my wayward son. Put his, hit his best family ring on the hand of his wayward son. Put his best shoes on his wayward son. Told his staff, let's, let's have a huge community-wide barbecue just for my son. Why? Why would he be so kind and so loving, so forgiving to someone who basically stood before him and said, man, I I just wish you were dead so I could have my money. Why would he be so kind? Because he knew as soon as he saw his boy that something had happened. He knew there was no way he was coming home. No way he would come home to face all of that shame. No way he would come home to face all of that abuse. No way he'd come home to face all that rejection if something had not happened. And when he saw him, he knew that his heart and his will had been completely broken. He ran to embrace his son because he knew his son had repented. He knew his son had changed. 
So what did that feel like for this father? Well, Jesus tells us in the story. Listen to Luke 15, verse 24. The father embraces, says to the crowd, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. He's ecstatic. And we all know what it means to lose something, right? We've lost our car keys, or we've lost the, the TV remote, or we've lost that $20 we had in our pocket. And outside of the TV remote, we know what it means to find something, right? We, we know what it means to finally discover the thing that we were looking for. We know that feeling of something being lost and, and something being found. It's interesting, though, this This father goes way beyond the lost and found department. He says, my boy was dead. I mean, he wasn't. (laughs) He was just off in a far country, living a sinful life. He wasn't wasn't dead. So why would he say, well, he was dead, but, but now he's alive again? Well, because that's how it felt. It felt like his son was dead. Now, I don't mean in that kind of angry, gruff way, like, yeah, that boy, he's as good as dead to me. No, that's, that's not the attitude of the father. No, what happened on that day when his son stood before him and rejected him, disowned him, it, it felt that day like someone had stabbed that father in the heart. And, and he stood just broken. And when his son left, when he saw him pass the end of the gate, That father was probably thinking to himself, you know, I don't know if he'll die out there with his wildlife, or I don't know if I will die before he repents and comes home, but that's probably the last time I'm going to see my boy. He was broken. His heart was broken. Dave Harvey says this, few trials slice as deeply as the spouse who goes rogue the child who rebels, or the sibling who spins out of control. Rejecting their role and shutting out those that love them, wayward souls thunder with reckless entitlement, myopic selfishness, and chaotic grief-instigating choices. It's the wayward do. They, they leave a, a trail. And what do we usually do when we're left in that trail? What do we usually do when when we're in the aftermath of what the prodigal has done? Well, we usually begin to ask over and over again in different ways, why? Why did this happen? Why is this happening? Why are they acting this way? And then right behind the whys are the whats. What could I have done different? What did I do wrong? And then Dave Harvey says this, a subtle paradox appears. The prodigal acts shamefully and feels justified. You love them sacrificially and feel ashamed. I mean, this is so true, right? So, So they do the wrong thing and feel no shame. You do the right thing and you feel bad because you're doing the right thing. And this goes on and on and on and and they keep doing the wrong thing. They keep being the prodigal, but they play the guilt card. You know, they, they act like they're the victim. 
that nobody's helping me and everybody's out to get me. And then you're loving, you're caring, you're, you're sacrificially loving and, and you feel bad because you, you feel like you're enabling or you're empowering or, or whatever. That, that's the paradox of, of dealing with a prodigal. And you know what happens when, when that exists and it does? You know what it does? It sucks the life out of you. Because everything is mixed up. Dave Harvey says this, the effects of this power take you beyond mere fatigue to a mind-enfeebling, soul-sapping, confidence-wrecking, depression-inciting, bone-tiring exhaustion. Been there? Are you there today? Are you there right now in life with, with that kind of exhaustion? He goes on to talk about what a prodigal really wants. This is what a prodigal really wants. A prodigal wants choices without consequences. Choices without consequences. He says this, For someone fleeing from God, freedom is typically the ability to pursue desires without the burden of responsibility. So consequences strike them as offensive, unjust, or excessive. <laughs> consequences. I'm offended by the consequences of my sin. Ah, that's the math, you know. And then we don't like them. We've, so, we've all seen this time and time again. Different places. Maybe we've seen it in the mirror, okay? You know, the, the teenager that looks shocked that they lost their license, even though they have multiple tickets, right? <gasps> How? Or the the irresponsible, wayward parent that looks shocked when the judge doesn't give them custody. Or the irresponsible, wayward church member that's, that's shocked that their name was removed from the list of, of deacon nomination and committee nominations. You know, we, we, we're shocked over consequences of sin when we really shouldn't be. And the prodigal is probably worst of all because they just live in this world that says, I don't want any consequences for my sin. See, that, that's what they want. They want choices without consequences. But what do they need? What does the prodigal child need from the parent that they are rebelling against? What does the prodigal spouse need from the spouse they're rejecting? What does the prodigal parent need from the kids that cramp their style or mess with their personal time? are holding them back from chasing their professional and recreational dreams. What do prodigals need? Prodigals need love. They, they need love. What kind of love? Well, I'm going to ask some prodigals to, to help us answer that question. But before we get to the prodigals, I just, I just kind of want to give kind of a defining definition of love so that we can have something to work with as we step into this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. Jesus is the only person who ever perfectly lived on this earth 
without sin. Therefore, he becomes the only person who can substitute himself for you, for the penalty of your sin. And that's what Jesus did. He laid his life down so that you could have a way to be right with God because without Jesus, you are not right with God. This is what Jesus has done. Jesus laid his life down for me and for you. That's how we know what love is. Without that, love's stuff. But with that, we know what love is. So that's our definition we're running with. Courtney Reisig is a wife and mom in Arkansas. For a couple of years, she ran from her parents. She was full-gear prodigal. She was living a, a wild, impulsive life. She was against all authority everywhere that she went. But her parents never ran from her. As she came to the, the end of her prodigal run, her father flew to Texas, borrowed a car to go drive and pick her up. Only problem is the car broke down on the way. So her dad made his way over to a bus station. He was going to try to catch a bus and, and make his way over there. And this is what he said to her on the phone. I will get to you, Court. If I have to walk there, I will get to you. Here's a, a father who's been abandoned, rejected, and ignored for two years, and yet he's willing to walk maybe more than 60 miles just to be sure that he can get to her. Courtney writes this, Parenting is hard work with no real guarantee of the outcome. Can we just let that sit for a second? <laughs> Parenting is hard work with no real guarantee of the outcome. That's a good one to marinate on. She goes on. While every situation is unique and has its own challenges, one thing is certain. Prodigal children need to know they are loved. You don't always appreciate and understand your parents when you're younger. Now I see my dad and mom as instruments used by God to help me understand the gospel. What can parents do to help their kids understand the gospel? This is what. Because the gospel tells us that God is relentless in his pursuit of us. It's gospel. God is relentless in his pursuit of us. It's not just the plane, it's not just the car, it's not just the bus, it's not just the walking. He is relentless in his pursuit of us. And then Courtney says this, so were my parents. Sometimes they pursued through prayer, begging God to open my eyes to my sin. Other times they pursued through letters, emails, and occasional phone calls. Even though I didn't always see it as love, Every form of contact was laced with love and care for the outcome of my life. By God's grace, he answered those prayers. See, that's prodigal life. It doesn't feel like love. Stop texting. Stop emailing. Stop calling. Stop loving. But even though it doesn't feel like love, they know it is love. Why? That's what Courtney says. They didn't abandon me, ever. See, that abandoning, it's, it's important. Now, does that mean 
that your home and your bank account should always be open to prodigals. No, that's not what that means. You see, the reality is a prodigal can be asked to leave the house and not be abandoned. The prodigal can be left in jail and not be abandoned. The prodigal can, cannot be given a handout and not be abandoned. How? Well, because consequences are real. <laughs> There's consequences. Look, if I go home tonight and, and I eat four bags of habanero cheddar cheese puffs and like three dark chocolate honey buns right before bed, there's going to be some consequences, you know? I mean, I don't know what, but there's going to be some consequences one way or the other, okay? Consequences are, are just life. We know that. But remember, a prodigal wants choices without consequences. But that, that's not reality. That's not how anything in the universe works for that matter. And so a consequence is not abandoning. It's just a consequence. It's just a consequence. And sometimes those consequences are hard. Sometimes they're sad and they're difficult. Sometimes they're tragic. But they're consequences. They're not abandonment. So how can, how can a parent, how can anyone dealing with a prodigal not abandon them? What does that look like? Sarah Walton's another prodigal. She's a wife and mom, lives in the Chicago area. She ran pretty hard, too, from her family. This is what she says. After a devastating loss of my identity as an athlete and hidden abuse from peers, my life spiraled out of control. I searched for identity and purpose in anything but Jesus. As self-destructive patterns drove me deeper into despair, I longed for an escape from this world, ultimately landing me in the protection of a hospital. In that stark white hospital room, the choice before me was clear. Be crushed by the weight of my sin or lay the broken pieces of my life at his feet. She writes this, By his grace, he led me to my knees and has been redeeming those broken pieces ever since. Just like Courtney Sayers' parents, they didn't abandon her. And, and they kept praying for her. But how did they pray for her? That's what Sarah said. My parents love me enough to pray for my brokenness. A brokenness that would lead to healing. Pray that your kids would be broken. I don't think you're going to find that on PBS, right? I mean, that, that sounds like the opposite of, of being a loving parent, right? Well, it depends on what kind of love we're talking about. If we're talking about Hallmark Channel, you know, Sunday night movie love, no, nah, that's not what we're talking about. If we're talking about making your daughter rearrange and reassign her wedding day around a football game, yeah, that, that's not the kind of love, you know, that we're talking about. But if we're talking about the kind of love where you truly love the heart and soul and mind of your prodigal, then a prayer for brokenness will fit. It'll fit. So how do you know if you're talking about love like that? How are you defining love? 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Love for your prodigal 
can only be real love if the love that you're using is the love of Jesus because Jesus is the only way we know what love is. He's it. Sarah Walton says this, we will only be bold enough to pray a prayer of brokenness over our children when we ourselves have been broken before God and trust his love for our children and us. See, that's the way you don't abandon your prodigal. You keep being broken yourself and you keep being broken for them. She goes on, It's only when we have completely surrendered our children to him that we can pray, Father, use what you must to save my child from an eternity apart from you, no matter the cost. That's a heavy prayer. I mean, if we're just honest, if we pray for our kids at all, our prayers usually sound like this. God, help them to get a a good job and a good education you know, help them to find a good spouse and make sure their spouse has a good job. You know, keep them safe and keep them out of jail. You know, but those are good prayers. Nothing wrong with those prayers. But here's the thing. What if your child grows up and gets the good education and they get the good job and they find the good spouse with the good education and the good job and they have good kids and those good kids get a good education and they go get good jobs and they find good spouses that have good jobs but none of them are ever made right with God. What have they gained? To be separated from God forever but to be a responsible American, the math doesn't work. When we're dealing with prodigals, the most loving thing we can do is be broken for them. And let me just say this. One of the most loving things that you can ever do for your child is to pray that they would be broken over their sin. That they might come to faith in Christ. That they might be made right with God. And guess what? That's also one of the greatest prayers you could pray for yourself. Is that you would be broken over your sin. Broken before God. And broken in such a way that you would be made right with him. Betsy Childs Howard says this, When your child or spouse is caught up in unbelief or sin, it's tempting to make that person the center of your faith. Your spiritual walk can become not about your salvation, but a desperate campaign to save the prodigal that you love. Let me rephrase that. Don't worship your prodigal. Don't worship them. And and don't tread water in the ocean of bitterness or the river of foolish empowering. just, Just don't go there. The father was not bitter. He wasn't foolishly giving his son another suitcase of money. Sure, come on in, buddy. Let me hug you. Let me kiss you. We're going to have some food, move, some, some food, and then I'm going to give you another suitcase of money, and you go do it again. That's not what's happening. He's not bitter. He's not being foolish. He's not worshiping his son. No, something else is happening. Listen to verse 24, the last part. And they began to celebrate. Celebrate. This This father is celebrating. He goes from thinking that his son is dead to his son being alive. 
He goes from thinking it was the last time he was ever going to see his son to his son standing right in front of him. So with great joy, he is hugging his son. Why? Why is there so much joy? Here's why. The father is hearing the sound of grace. He's he's hearing it. He's hearing the sounds of grace. He's seeing the sounds of grace. Nothing is blocking his hearing because his heart is free to love. His son was lost, but now he was found. His son showed all the signs of being spiritually dead. And for all he knew, he was physically dead somewhere. But, but now he's, he's there. He's right in front of him. So he is overjoyed. The father's full of joy. And his love is a love that was hoping. It wasn't love and hope. His love actually hoped. What kind of love hopes? First John 3 and verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. God doesn't show up at churches on Sunday and say, I'd like to make an announcement. I just want y'all to know I love you. And I want you to know that I love you, and I'm saying that I love you, I'm declaring that I love you, and I want you to have faith in my announcement and my declaration that I love you. That's not it. He goes beyond the announcement. He goes beyond the declaration. Jesus laid his life down for us. God proves his love. He doesn't just announce his love, he proves his love. And when did Jesus die for us? He died for us when we were sinners. Did he die for us because we, we made all A's on our report card? Did he die for us when we cleaned up our room without having to be asked? Did he die for us when we got married or when we had kids or when we got the promotion or when we retired? No, Jesus died for us when we were sinners. He didn't die for us because we did something nice. He died for us when we were sinners. In fact, technically, he died for us before we were even sinners. Jesus gave his life for us. That's how we know what love is. So what? Why does that matter in talking about prodigals? Here's why. You you can forget everything else I've said today, but get this. See, the the very nature of the gospel and what we know about the love Jesus had in giving himself up for us reminds us of this, that no matter how much your prodigal hurts you, no matter what your prodigal says or does to you, no matter what is connected to the prodigal and your life, the prodigal is not the last word in your life. The prodigal is not the last word in your life. Only Jesus has the last word. Only Jesus. Jesus has the last word. So we don't worship the prodigal. We don't abandon the prodigal. We don't empower the prodigal. We just keep reminding ourselves through the gospel that there's no power of hell, and there's no scheme of man, and there's nothing that a wayward, rebellious prodigal can do to us that will ever 
take us and snatch us away from the everlasting hands of God because we have been made right with him because Jesus laid down his life for us. That's what Jesus did. The gospel does something else too. To the prodigal, it it holds out this invitation. You, You don't have to stay dead. You don't have to stay lost. You can be found by Jesus. You can be made alive in Christ. You can come home. That invitation never stops. But you may be a believer and you're in the middle of a prodigal situation right now and and you're downloading some of this, but it's not connecting. You're like, ah, yeah, uh, but, but you're just still struggling. Let me just give you this encouragement. Again, this is from Betsy Howard. Perhaps you're furious at your prodigal for destroying your reputation. Am I there? Maybe there are times when you want him to suffer for what he's done. If you respond sinfully to your prodigal, let that sin send you running to your father. And here's why. We must remember that in relation to God, we're all prodigal sons and daughters. I want you to know it's easy. It's easy for us to deal with the prodigal like, ah, can't believe they're doing this. It's easy for us to get real self-righteous and say, hey, I'm not doing anything like they're doing. But the gospel reminds us that everybody in this room is a prodigal. Everybody needs to be loved. Everybody needs to not be abandoned. Everybody needs to be rescued. Betsy goes on, answers this question. How does God deal with a prodigal? Not how we do. We know, generally speaking, how we are prone to deal with prodigals. We usually get mad. We get our feelings hurt. We try to do some creative, mysterious revenge, usually, or or something along those lines. So how does God deal with a prodigal? This is what she says. They don't work their way back into his favor. He doesn't wait for them to clean up before he lets them into his presence. He washes their feet and gives them clean clothes to wear. And then she says this, the prodigal may have done everything possible to destroy your trust and goodwill, but you love him anyway. You don't love him because he deserves it, but because he's yours. And that's how God loves you. Not because we deserve it, but because we are his. By this, we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us.